you know, all these composers have a personal style and we grow up being told, you know, the obvious like, oh, do your own thing, have your own style, that's what sets you apart, blah, 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 blah. But nobody tells you actually how to actually do that, right? Yeah. Um, so I actually kind of tried to figure it out, at least in the context of the type of music I was interested in. This is Patrick O'Malley, a composer, and uh, we're very excited to have you on. We've been friends oh, for a long you. time. Mm -hmm. uh, we've known each other since USC days, which is like, what, 2013, Almost 10 years. 13, yeah. 2012, something like that. I started in 2013. 2013, right, yeah. and I was probably a third year undergrad by then. Yeah, you were either a junior or a senior. Yeah, I was point. a baby. You were a master's student, I think, I came when you came in. And then you kept going there mm -hmm. and going there and going there while I, while I ditched the West Coast. Well, I, I really liked Los Angeles and I really liked USC. And it was my experience as a master's student at that particular school was, um, I think, way better than I expected it to be. And it just made sense, like, hey, I'm in the city. If I have to live in a big city, LA seems to be the best one that fits me. And if I stay at USC um, for the doctorate, like, you know, I, I checked the curriculum and everything. It was like, oh, I can finish everything more or less by the time I'm 29 or 30 and just be like done with it. So you were at, you were at USC for your master's. You decided to stay for your doctorate. Mm -hmm. What made you, what was your expectation going into it? You said it it was exceeded your expectation. Well, I, what in, was it? In, going so into it? I went to Northwestern for my undergrad, um, and you know I don't come from a my family. I don't have any professional musicians in my family. Um, there, I have music lovers in my family, thankfully, but not any professional musicians. So we kind of just when it came to selecting an undergrad, it was just kind of like apply to you know the list of good music schools. And then go to whichever one seems to be the best one you can get into. That was really all, all the logic that went into it. So I wound up at Northwestern, and um, Northwestern doesn't have a traditional master's program. They have their undergrad, and then they have their doctorate program, which is sort of like, at least when I was there, it was like a combined master's and doctoral program. I don't know exactly how it worked, because I didn't do it, obviously. But one of the things that was kind of weird about Northwestern was there are all these undergrads um, there, obviously, and then the doctoral students who were typically much older and much more interested in a very different kind of music than the undergrads were. Um, it was, you know, they were all into you know, much weirder stuff than the undergrads typically were into. My, and, and it was also a small department. So I, I was like, in my year, uh, I think there were four of us. And uh, I was into kind of classical concert music and orchestral film scoring. Another guy was only interested in musical theater. And of course, Northwestern had a big theater program, so it made sense for him to be there for that. Uh, another guy in my year was a, a composer named Zach Robinson, who now scores Cobra Kai. Wow. <laughs> um, and he was always into film scoring, but much more from like 
a rock synth band sort of perspective. Um, he didn't do a whole lot with orchestra, although he does know how to do that stuff. And then a, a, I think the fourth guy was into like nothing but chamber music. So, so it was like a very small department. Everyone was in, kind of into different things on their own in the undergrad. The faculty were uh, more, much more kind of avant-garde, cutting-edge, new music type of people. And the doctoral students were kind of in line with that. That's who they wanted to study with. So in retrospect, that was very different than coming to USC, which had a slightly bigger department. And when I got there, I realized that, oh, everybody's kind of stylistically much more synced up with what I'm interested in doing. But they're all, they all seem to be better at it than I am. And that kind of fed into me kind of really wanting to, I think, get better at what I was doing and take my music more seriously. Um, and obviously, the faculty, likewise, were doing stuff that I was more interested in than at Northwestern. So it kind of changed my perspective on you know, what, what the purpose or what the usefulness of grad school uh, could be because when we were at when myself and my colleagues at Northwestern, we kind of just secretly thought, you know, we would joke that because the doctoral students were writing such weird music, we used to we just thought we just all thought a doctor was what you did if you couldn't get anyone to play your music, <laughs> and uh, uh, so that's that's how much of a divide. That's it, crazy. Because yeah. we really the undergrads and doctorates at Northwestern really didn't hang out or do anything together, which was not so much the case at USC. There was much more interest between between um between the different degree programs of what people were doing and so so the master's degree program at usc was was pretty i think transformative for me i think that's when i really started to you know start to churn out stuff that that i look back on and actually find interesting um and you mean the, yeah. the music you were writing there right, right. at the time that you were there? Yes. Okay. Um, and when 2015 rolled around, at the end of 2014, it just felt like I really had a great time there, was, was having a good time, and it's like, oh, I could stay at the school, take it, have all those resources available to me for like another three or four years while still being in LA and still being able to, you know, go out into concerts and meet musicians and all the, the typical things that people do um, when they're starting to try and get their stuff played or find, or find opportunities. So, and so that's what I did and I have no regrets about it whatsoever. And you realized that you were writing the music that you wanted to write while you were at USC. I mean, that seems to be I think, like the biggest I think I was always writing thing. the music I wanted to write, but, but in terms of like, really holding myself to a high standard, I think that's what changed. Was so, was, there wasn't really, I don't think I've ever gone through what you would call like a stylistic, uh, you know, paradigm shift. I think it, but I think the biggest thing for me that has changed is like the standard and the, the, the quality that I am trying to hold my music up to when I write and put something out there. And while you're at Northwestern, I mean, it's different when you're 18, 19, exactly. 20 years old. Exactly, you're also old. younger, so yeah. You're younger, you don't know as much, right. obviously. Mm -hmm. But also, you weren't really 
surrounded by people that you know were stylistically necessarily right. interested. Right. I really in what didn't have doing. too much to compare myself to. And although the faculty at Northwestern were good, and certainly I certainly learned all the basics very well, um, I don't think the faculty really pushed me that hard either, in terms of like, oh, your stuff sounds like these composers. You should really, you know delve into that whole thing and, and, and see what it is they're doing. Um, it was more, you know, here's what we, the faculty, are interested in. And, and, and some of that was useful, for sure. But, um, but I think I just had, it felt like USC was getting me a lot more feedback, um, which I think really helped me get to where I, where, what I'm writing today. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I feel like most people don't know much about USC just because they, yeah. there's like this kind of, not stigma, but, you know, most classical music is, like contemporary classical music is centered in New York. Yeah. Or a little bit in Chicago and Boston as well. Mm -hmm. And people want to kind of, people kind of gravitate towards mm -hmm. them. I mean, we're, in, we're like an hour out of right. Manhattan right now. Yeah. And I freaking grew up in LA and mm -hmm. I'm still out here, you mm -hmm. know, like eight, nine years later sure. after moving here. So. There is that pull to be out here, I feel like, mm -hmm. in the New York area. Uh, but there is something about being out in a place like L.A. Mm -hmm. where there's like, I felt like there was not much, at least at USC, I felt like there was not much pressure to write in any one particular way. Mm -hmm. um, and I did feel like while I was an undergrad, I mean, I was hanging out with people like you, master student. Mm -hmm. at, like Juilliard, for example, I mean, I did know the undergrads, but I feel like I was more just like, trying to meet the undergrads more just, just because mm. I at USC that was my experience like right. the undergrads and the masters yeah. and the doctorates they all mm -hmm. mixed together well, there was no there was no weird like like oil and water thing going on between sure. the different levels yeah um, and I think at Juilliard I, I felt there was a, there was a lot was more, more of that, that. yeah, yeah. Like what you're describing at Northwestern mm -hmm. and now I'm at Columbia and there is a bit of that too that oil water thing. Mm -hmm. But ironically, I feel like the Columbia, a lot of the Columbia undergrad composers write a little bit like the, like okay. the doctorate composers. They have okay. the same kind of experimental mindset. Yeah, I think, yeah, Northwestern was definitely, the undergrad pool was very stylistically diverse. Um, I think because obviously you're dealing with young people um, who may not have either figured out exactly what they want to do or have just not been exposed to everything that's out there in contemporary classical music yet. Um, but yeah, it was, it, the, the undergrads were very stylistically diverse and the doctoral students were much more, you know, homogenous. What was the orchestra program like at Northwestern? Because now you write a lot of orchestra music. Mm -hmm. There was a time when me and you were like, <laughs> doing every orchestra reading there right. was in the U.S. Yes. Like, a couple of years straight, uh -huh. pre, you know, pandemic times. Yeah. Like, I'm, now that you mentioned Northwestern, like, what was, was there any, like, cross-pollination between the undergrads and the orchestra program, or, like, how did you develop Yeah, your... I did. So there was, there were opportunities to get things played. They were not particularly systematized. You kind of had to get a little bit lucky. So I think what ended up happening to me was, I think, I was writing an orchestra piece. I was vaguely aware that every year, or at least every other year, um, there would be a concert with the new, 
the Northwestern Symphony Orchestra devoted to concerto winter. They would have concerto competitions um, on the performance side of things. And there would be one concert out of the year where um, I think there'd be three winners and they would play their concertos with the orchestra. And on that concert, there was an opportunity for a fourth piece to be played, which would have been an original piece by one of the student composers. Um, which is a perfectly fine opportunity. The, the only thing that was weird about it was that it, it, it wasn't like at USC where first, you know, when you interview there, they tell you all about the New Music for Orchestra program. And then every year you get those emails, you know, here's when it's due. It, oh, here's a reminder that it's due at the beginning, right after New Year's or whenever it's done. You know, it's a very set up thing. And this concerto um, uh, concert with one piece by a student was never, never had that sort of like, that feeling of like, it's, it happens every year. It's a reason to come here. You know, there was never that, but it did exist. And so I just happened to have finished an orchestra piece. It was called Superimpose my junior year and managed to get it played on that concert. Um, and that was so, and that was like a 15 minute orchestra piece. And so I, I, that was really handy to have for the master's degree. So they, so when you were doing this piece, you're writing the orchestra piece, you knew that there was a possibility of getting it played. On yes, this I was, I was aware of it, but it, it wasn't like, I had to ask my teachers about like, you know, when does it can, do? Can I even do it? Right. Is can it a waste I, of time? Can I get an orchestra piece played? Because I remember I had a, a piece, an earlier orchestra piece, um, uh, that I had written as a freshman, and I remember showing it to the teachers and and them saying, "Oh, you should talk to Jan Polsky, Victor Jan Polsky, about having this played." Um, and I actually met with him, who was the department chair of conducting and led the, the major orchestra concerts. And it just, and nothing ever happened out of it. I showed him the piece and he was like, I'll see if I can get this played. And I just never heard back. Right. Um, but, you know, there was never, for the concerto concert where you could get a piece played, it was all very much figured out directly with my faculty members, my private teachers. I don't remember there being too many like announcements in our weekly symposium. But there was always a new piece every year. I don't think it was every year. I think it was like... Just kind of like on a... If it fit the schedule, it happened. If, if it didn't, it didn't. But what about with the doctorate students? Was there any like competition if there was only one new piece I think every that, year? I think the wind ensembles had something more, more consistent for a large ensemble opportunity. I do remember um, big wind band pieces getting played. Uh, there was, uh, you, I think there was always an opportunity to have something played or considered for the contemporary ensemble, um, which was the symphonietticized group. Or 15 players or less yeah, kind of situation. So I actually had something played by them as a sophomore. Um, but of course, that's not the same thing as an orchestra. And that's kind of what I wanted to work up to. And it just, the timing, I just got lucky with the timing that there was, that the concert was happening and I had a piece that was, could be done in time. Yeah, but this, this is the thing, though. I feel like, especially when you're in school, um, 
feel like a lot of people feel like they have to be in school for composition because there's a structure to it, mm. right? Which there is. I mean, you take yeah. classes, there's your teacher, you have your lessons. Right. There is a lot of structure. But with things like this, where you actually want to put on a project, mm -hmm. I feel like there's always this yeah. uh, need to like have, you know, you got you to gotta make the first move. No one is going to make it for you. And that yeah. kind of mindset continues after you're done. Sure. Like no, no one's going to like tell you, hey, write this orchestra piece. You yeah. Know? It's just not going to happen. You got to do it yourself. Yeah, I think that was a, probably, a, I probably learned a good lesson in that, getting all that, you know, you know putting it out there to the faculty, hey, I'm, I want to write an orchestra piece, and then saying, okay, well, there's this, it looks like you could do it possibly on this thing. I do remember there may have been like two other submissions for that opportunity, but it wasn't something... And that was the thing about the department as a whole. It, well, there was not this kind of, I, th I think the people interested in writing orchestra music was actually very much a minority at the Northwestern department. Um, so, so I was able to get, as an undergrad, you know, a 15 minute piece played. Uh, I think probably because the competition wasn't super hard core. I also feel that, you know, I think it goes back to what I was saying before: is that if you don't really want to write an orchestra piece, exactly, yeah, it, no one, you know what I mean? It's not right because like, I feel like most people want to write an orchestra piece. Like my colleagues at Columbia, for example, a lot of them haven't written orchestra pieces. But mm -hmm. when you ask them, "Hey, would you like to write an orchestra piece?" almost all of them say yes. It's not. Right. It's not a. It's not about whether they want to or don't. They all would like to. But would they, do they want to make the first move of writing the piece yeah. or figuring out how right. am I going to get this thing done? The answer is usually no. Exactly, yeah. So, so I think that's where the, the mind shift changes yeah, I mean, with I grew you, up, for and, example. Right. I mean, I grew up basically listening to nothing but some type of orchestral music for the yeah, vast same. majority, yeah. whether it be film music or, or classical music. Um, so I definitely had, you know... And to me, it, you know, I just kind of, the orchestra just sort of made sense for me in terms of like, um, okay, you've got all the instruments and you start making a score. I mean, there, it, 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 I don't know, it's just I've never really been as interested in chamber music for whatever reason, although I am interested in it, I do write chamber music. Um, so, so, so yeah, and, I, and it just, I remember... I think the first time I ever had an orchestra piece played was at Interlochen. Um, I did one summer there, and they did have, like, you could write like a three to five minute thing, and you would get it read. Um, and you'd get like 10 minutes of time. For and Interlochen is an academy for yeah. high school uh, for high age school. students. So this right. is before going to Northwest. Yes, yeah, so I, I did, they have the high school program, and they also have the summer program, which is also for high school age. I did one summer there, and I wrote. I had, I wrote some little thing for it, and that went well enough. And I just, you know, it just, I just knew that's what I wanted to to do. So it was the music that I loved listening to, and so so when it came time, so I was at Northwestern, you know, and you have four years to work with, you know, writing an orchestra piece. Um, just kind of felt like the natural thing to do with my time. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I felt the same way while I was uh -huh. at USC. It was like, 
<clears throat> it, like you said, it was the music I gravitated towards. Although yeah. I feel like the older I'm getting, I'm gravitating towards smaller <laughs> settings <laughs> for yeah. some reason. Um, I don't know why, but I guess, but that's the thing. You mm -hmm. want your music to change with you as you're changing, sure. you want to change. But if you're excited when you're young to write orchestra music, that's the best time to write orchestra music, I think, because yeah. you have the energy, you have the oh, excitement, yeah. I, the enthusiasm. I, yeah, I remember like staying up very late, night after night, in my little single um, college dorm working on that piece. I yeah. think back to that, and, and now I'm like, I don't know if I could do that <laughs> as much. The only I mean, I, if somebody was paying me enough money, I could do it. But The only time I ever had an all-nighter, I think it was like one or two times, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was twice, but one of them I remember for sure, I was making parts for my first orchestra sure. piece yeah. at USC. Mm -hmm. It's like, and you know, that, that memory sticks with you. It's like, it's like when a, com when a comedian like is doing a, uh -huh. a stand-up show or something where like no one is... No one no cares there. about their, you know, thing. It, like, you kind of have yeah, that similar care. vibe. That's like, but you care. Yeah, that's the right. thing. That's you why care. you remember it. Right, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I still pull late nights once in a while, but I'm much more cognizant about managing that time and, and saving, those, saving my energy for those nights when they're going to, you know, be most useful. Right, because, you know, we're getting older. We're both in our 30s. It's... You know, it's, it's yeah, more health conscious about, um, at least for me, yeah, I'm trying to get enough sleep. <laughs> so you went Northwestern, okay, you got to USC. I actually remember, too, now that you mention it, it hasn't mm -hmm. been, I haven't thought about it in a while, but that first time I was at USC to do the, um, like they, when they do the meet and greet mm -hmm. with the prospective students, the yeah. first thing out of their mouth was the new music for orchestra show. Yeah. And even for the undergrads that were there, that was, that was a thing mm -hmm. that they mentioned. And mm -hmm. they made it a point that the undergrads could also, yeah, uh, like every apply. year, at not that. just the graduate students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, yeah, there was there wasn't that. Northwestern definitely didn't make it a sales pitch. When you would ask them, they of course would say, "Yeah, there are opportunities," but it was never like a, "Well, hey, welcome to USC. Guess what? We have this orchestra every year." And you know. All you got to do is apply. And not just one uh, piece gets on. It's like five or six or five, five, six yeah. pieces, uh, mm -hmm. new pieces. Not this is not a pitch for USC or anything. Right. We just happen to. This is just this is just us. Uh, it's well, it's part of me kind of comparing my undergrad experience to my graduate experience. Yeah, and definitely. kind of how you know how one school, both schools were great, but definitely one fit my personality and interests more than the other yeah both schools will teach you the same things mm -hmm. both schools will give you the structure that you need both yeah. schools especially like northwestern also is like a research like a proper yeah. use research university it has other things besides sure. music both schools are similar they're both they're both in huge cities yeah. but you yeah. know when you're young you know i always say to students like when you're young when you're 18 you know I almost say now, you know, it's if you don't go to college without it being paid for, I'm I'm even mm -hmm. that far, then, yeah. Especially for composition, for sure. I wouldn't even go because there's so many amazing resources now that we That's didn't have ten that years ago. That's something I think ago. about a lot, especially since I also, I mean, I teach now. Um, I do private lessons um, outside of LA now at, at CSUN, uh, the Cal State Northridge, and. Most of my students are interested in, in the classical stuff, but I get a few that are interested in film as well. Mm. 
And certainly with the film stuff, it's even more of a question of like, do you need to go to school or not? And I'm just, yeah, I'm at the point where it's like, you know, you got to ask yourself a few questions. One is like, are you a good student? Do you actually enjoy going to school? Mm. How do you learn? Because um, for some people, it's just never, they've just never been that way. Um, second, you know, as far as the money's concerned, like, you know, look at what tuition costs and then what would happen if you took half or a portion of that money and just started, you know, start by, started buying gear. And then I think, the, I think the one thing I would, if somebody asked me for advice that I would highly recommend is still trying to find some sort of mentor, some sort of person doing what you would like to do and either try and get, you know, see if they'll give you private lessons or some sort of guidance. I think that that is something that I'd recommend to anyone, whether they go to school or not, just so they have someone in the field to, to ask questions and to get real feedback from, because that's something you don't get from the YouTube videos and the online resources. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that things have worked out for me with the whole going to school thing. Um, but, you know, certainly, certainly at Northwestern, I, there were several classes I took that I don't think added anything to, you know, my abilities as a composer or, or human being in general. But we're also in that generation, yeah. I feel like we're, I kind of feel like we're like the last, I don't, I don't want to sound like apocalyptic right. or anything, but I feel like we're in the last kind of group of composers where getting something tangible out of going to university, especially going all the way yeah. through to the end, the doctorate has any tangible mm -hmm. uh, difference in making our music sound any different or, or, or pushing us yeah. further in. I think for someone like me, uh, which who's like, you know, very much into stuff like score study and, and learning the history of music and all that. I, and especially, and also into large ensemble stuff, I think school, the right school, mind you, uh, still offers a lot of advantages. And I think there will always be people for whom that avenue is going to be the best thing. Um, but, uh, but certainly I think, I think it's shifting a little bit towards do you, need, do you need to go to school? The answer is not going to be an immediate yes Yeah. as much. It depends on the, the individual um, and, of course, all the variables that go into it. But I think that, I think that certainly finding some sort of mentor is still going to be something I would always recommend to somebody. And if you can, if you can manage it, being in a place where you can go out and hear a lot of music, or or have access to concerts, or or um, or, or things that you're interested. In. So it's being able to live in some sort of uh, metropolitan city, at least part of the time. Yeah, figure out yeah. if you actually like doing it. It's, I feel like yeah. it's still like very romantic. I mean, that's that's part of the reason I came to you. So when I applied for masters, I got into both Michigan and USC, and I, I came down to like you know, two or three days before the deadline to choose before I had really made up my mind because Michigan is also a great school. They're also, you know, they're similar to USC stylistically or at least in terms of like uh, people doing things that I myself would be interested in doing. Um, 
and it was very, you know, it's a, in a beautiful town, Ann Arbor, and it's very close to my family in Indiana and, and, and northern Michigan. Um, but I think one of the things that made me choose URC over Michigan was, you know, I grew up in northeast Indiana. I just went to school at Northwestern, which is near Chicago, but not in Chicago. Um, I think I should, I think I should just go into the heart of a big city and try that. And that was one of the deciding factors, um, coming out to LA for sure. I mean, and it's also like, especially for a master's graduate degree, usually where you go, I've, I mean, at least with me, my experience sure, yeah. and the people that I know, wherever they mm -hmm. end up with their last degree, that's where they're, that's where they end up being yeah. uh, long term. And I was always told this, you know, as an undergrad or that, you know, wherever you go is probably where you're going to end up like mm -hmm. long term. I just never really believed it. Oh, I'll always go back to LA and uh -huh. at least think, or maybe you were, I don't know if you were thinking you would, you would always go well, back I'm to Well, I'm a little unique in that, in that I um, have always been going back to my family in the Midwest and over COVID with nothing to do, I set up this second studio in, in our Michigan location. And so I spend like two or three months out of the year that's there. Um, and uh, so I already kind of have this, this kind of like, I've got the big city, but I also have this country place to go to when I need to go to it. And so, um, you know, my long term, I don't know whether I'll be in LA or, or Michigan, but, but I, it's, uh, people who know me in LA or they 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 all know that I bounce back and forth. It's pretty typical for me to be out of town. Yeah, and to maintain your times. connections out there. At, yeah, North, at, when you were at Northwestern and right, and obviously your Michigan ties. I mean, it's not something that you want to just throw away. Yeah, and I work with sudden, people yeah. in Chicago once in a while. And yeah, um, like yeah, that. and you work with Fifth House Ensemble, which is well, I did. They 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 folded this past year. Oh, really? Just they've been they've been they uh, seventeen for a while. years, I think. They were around for 17 wow. years. Um, this, the musicians are, of course, still playing. Um, but yeah, we did our last series. I did a couple of concerts with, with them this past year, uh, conducting the Journey live show. And, um, and then they, they uh, ended up uh, shutting down right at the beginning of summer, like the end of May or June or mm -hmm. something. Well, people are getting older, they have families, maybe they get a, it's, a, a job somewhere where they're kind of tied I know down. that um, they were facing some pretty heavy turnover issues, um, partly due to COVID, partly due to the, you know, um, people getting older and changing things. And so the core uh, people there just wasn't quite the same. Um, so... But some of them have gone off to start smaller chamber groups. Mm -hmm. um, I still write to them once in a to people from Fifth House once in a while if I have, want to want them to like demo a, a part for me or something like that. Um, so yeah, but so yeah, so I so those are the main Chicago people that I've been working with. Yeah, I'm glad we, we this was brought up because I wanted to ask you about this. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that you've done it. I've never really asked too many specifics about it, but your collaboration with Austin Winnery mm -hmm. and the, uh, the Journey Live series yeah. is very, I mean, 
For me as a classical composer sure. with a capital C, you know, although I've done film stuff, I feel like you've, yeah. you know, you've continued to do the film yeah. music route, video game music route. You've, you're like not in it, I would say, 100%, but I you, are, myself, you are in the sphere. Of... I would describe myself as a distant satellite orbiting the scoring <laughs> world. Like I do yeah. know people yeah. in that world, um, some of them high up, but my path has been... You know, I've always wanted, I think, I think I, since my introduction to the orchestra was really at the movie theater, I think that that was kind of the first. Mm -hmm. Same. Was the first sort of like, ooh, that's what I want to do. Um, but over the course of undergrad, the, the, the classical music, the idea of what you can do with that when you have a captive audience, the sort of emotive and formal storytelling, if you want to call it that, musical experiences you can create, to me, were just, became just as interesting as, as film scoring. Um, I remember, it, it, I think it was my junior year, I don't know if it was before or after this Superimpose got played, but they had, they hosted, or maybe it was our senior year, Northwestern hosted a 75th birthday festival for John Corriano. Okay. Um, and they played... A bunch of stuff. They played Circus Maximus, Clarinet Concerto. They staged um, Ghosts of Versailles, gazebo dances. Um, his his quarter tone piano duet, which oh, that piece is, which uh, chiascuro. Yeah. Chiascuro. yeah, yeah, they did a yeah they did a chamber a big chamber concert with that on it and some other things. Um. Uh. There was a master class session where people did piano reductions of his concerto, of his other concertos. Um, and I had always been a huge fan of Elliot Goldenthal's music mm -hmm. growing up. And of course, Goldenthal studied with Corriano for like seven years. And so that intersection of, of cinematic style with the experimental, with the larger than life sort of approach to orchestras or wind ensemble, whatever, really started to get me interested in, ooh, maybe I could just, like the classical side of thing could be a bigger part of what I, what I want to do. And that kind of, and so, so it wasn't an immediate thing. It wasn't like I went to Circus Maximus and my entire life changed. It wasn't like that, but it was a gradual discovery through my teachers at Northwestern, through the concerts I was going to, to where when I was done at Northwestern, I kind of, kind of felt like I love film music and game music, but I also love classical music. I think I would like a career that somehow tries to do both, which may or may not be the easiest route, but it's the route that I, that I feel most comfortable in pursuing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's not right for everyone, but yeah. I feel like it's not, the word is not permission. It's another word that I'm looking for, but, but seeing that someone else has done it before, yeah. classical and film, because you hear about Aaron Copeland doing film and classical right. at the same time. You hear about Prokofiev and sure. people like that, but that wasn't, that's not really what like, people like Goldenthal are doing, no. or what, like, you're, what you're doing, where mm -hmm. it's more like this kind of true intersection yeah. between storytelling in both avenues. Yeah. When I listen to your music, mm -hmm. it does feel like storytelling is at the forefront. And it's, it's, un, it's unapologetic yeah. storytelling. And I think that I've, I've, also. yeah, and I've gotten to the point where 
people listen to my recent stuff and they'll ask me, oh, is there a story behind this? Mm-hmm. And most of the time there isn't. It's just, kind of, I think it's just become part of yeah. who I am. And, and so, um, which, is, which, I, which, I, which is great because I, one of the things I like about our genre, the classical genre, is that it doesn't prescribe all the time what, you, what your experience needs to be. Like you, the imagination of the audience has a has a lot of leeway. And I think that's what draw me drew me to it so um, so powerfully when I was growing up. So so it is, you know, I think uh, very rewarding for for me to be able to write in those styles, um, but without necessarily needing a program. Um, which is which is may sound ironic because I because I'm coming from a you know film music aesthetic or a film music love of film music from my growing up days, but um, but yeah when I'm when I'm working with if I'm working with a director whom I really trust, you know I'll I'll just tell them like you know for me the storytelling is like just the tip of the iceberg. There's all this like for me more interesting musical technical stuff happening and sometimes you find directors whom you can have that conversation with and they'll get into it and you know and we say technical stuff you mean technical stuff happening with the with the music or what happening with, with the music the, with, like with, the, stru- the structure structure the instrumentation the orchestration mm-hmm. um where yes there are the characters and the emotions um but there's also this you know all you know motivic uh Manipulation going on. It's 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 fun to be able to find collaborators for whom you can kind of get beyond the stereotypical way people talk about film music mm-hmm. into something that's that's you know for me a little bit more interesting. You can't always do that with 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 every director because sometimes they just want to talk about the characters and the story, which is totally fine. It's totally relevant. Um, but I feel like having the, the classical background and, and having done a lot of classical music, you know, allows, it allows me to do, you know, a little bit more under the hood, or at least, it, at least I feel like I'm able to do that more if I hadn't, you know, as opposed to if I hadn't, you know, if I'd just gone to school and been, I'm doing nothing but scoring films. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that makes sense. Well, yeah, when you're doing nothing but scoring films, I mean, it becomes more of like, okay, I got to make sure I, I it's, it doesn't become like, okay, I got to be very good technically at my craft. Sure. It becomes, I got to finish this project <laughs> fast. And yeah. if I finish it fast and it's good enough, mm-hmm. 70, 80%, as good as I can make it, mm-hmm. and, and the ha- director is happy, I checked all the boxes, right, and the director is impressed I was able to finish the thing fast, so he's yeah. not so worried. He's got a sheet is worried about so many other sure. things happening on the project. Of course, the last yeah. thing they want, they care about. I mean, they do care about the score, obviously, right. but they don't want to, but they care more about being anxious about the score getting done. Yeah, so of course. They, get, of course. they don't want to sit there and, and right. sit. How did you figure out every other yeah. second? In right. And that's score? why I said, you know, you can't have that, you know, it, I only have that conversation if I've worked with somebody, you know, maybe multiple times or if, or if they have a music background, which sometimes you find people yeah. who, who, who played 
in high school or whatever. It's very interesting you mentioned this because this this a very similar thing to what you're saying happened to me mm-hmm. when back when I was scoring films at USC. Yeah, I had my buddy uh, who I still keep in touch with, Ali Kareem. He uh, I did a couple of films for him, mm-hmm. the Iraqi film film director mm-hmm. who's out in Texas. Yeah, um, and he I don't remember who asked asked about this first. It was I don't maybe it was me. I, I'm, I think I invited him to come to my apartment at mm-hmm. USC yeah. and, and just watch me write sure. to his picture. Yeah. He just sat there for like four or five hours mm-hmm. and I just was writing. And yeah. by the end of the four or five hours, I showed him what I was doing. Mm. I showed him how much was done just to give him an idea of like what's realistic in a four yeah. or five hour right. time period. But he was uh-huh. very interested mm-hmm. in just seeing the process. Seeing the process, yeah. Um, just like how you might go onto a set and see how right. you know, how see long how, it takes right. one minute of footage to get in the can. Right. I mean, it takes yeah. a while, you know. Yeah, so, it takes a while. Um, but it's, it's rare to have a director or producer that is that invested in the other uh, uh-huh. part of the process. Yeah. Not that that's, that's not the reason I didn't want to continue. I mean, I think it was just because, um, kind of like you, you're just so obsessed with, Figuring out what, how can I get better technically as a as a composer, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to do that if you're just doing like commercial yeah. And I, music. Yeah, and I think it's I'm, just, I'm it's just hard. I'm also lucky in that the type of film music that I was coming across growing up had a lot of it had a lot of stuff going under the mm-hmm. hood that was really tight um, um, from a technique point of view, while also being, you know, while also providing the listener with a clear stylistic voice that also on top of all that was also fitting the film and doing all that that it needs to do i know that you were doing uh, i mean i, I just i didn't sure. i didn't know about this before but i was looking at your cv and it said that you were like a you were like an archivist at usc right for the for that the was scores. a fun little little side job uh so i when i was doing my doctorate you can you can do minors as your doctorate. Um, so my minors were conducting and screen scoring. So I took a couple of classes over at the over at um, the film music school or the screen scoring school as it's now referred to. Um, and uh, I remember I had to meet with uh, the chair of the department before getting approved for the minor. Uh, which was all fine, um, and I got to know a few other people there. And I guess I don't think they get too many DMA students doing the minor. <laughs> I don't think it's a super popular thing. I think by by the time you reach either master's degree or DMA age, you've either gone one way or the other. Right, but then yeah. there's people like me, people like Jules, who who are interested in doing both. Um, so they knew I was a DMA student. And I think the first, I didn't get that job. I think the first thing they asked me to do was, I think the chair, one of their, their guest speakers, because um, they bring in composers the same way that the composition school does every week. Uh, one of their guest speakers was a composer who had a, a daughter at USC. And apparently this, this person asked the, the chair, um, do you have any students that could help tutor my daughter in theory? <laughs> okay. Like maybe like, one, you know, like two or three sessions just to get her through the final. Yeah. And, and so since I was the DMA student, they asked me. <laughs> 
And I was like, yeah, okay, why not? You know, I'm, you know, it seems like you never know when saying yes to a gig is going to, you know, pay off. And so I did that. It was fine. Um, and then I, I, I remember that I don't remember, I can't remember if this was before or after the premiere of my violin concerto because the, because the chair, I invited, I sent an email to the department saying, Hey, I know you guys are busy. I know it's the screen scoring program and you guys are, you know, up 24 hours a day doing your, your two year program that's squeezed into one year. But I actually have two pieces being played on campus. There's the NMO concert, and then I've got something happening on the USC Edge Contemporary Ensemble mm-hmm. thing. If anyone's interested, you know, it's free. And, uh, and, and Dan Carlin, the chair of the department, actually came to the Edge concert and heard my violin. Really? Wow. Yeah. I was like, whoa. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, so crazy. I think, so, and I, I, which, was, which was really neat, and I think, I think it was after that they contacted me saying, hey, so we have a bunch of donated stuff, um, scores and memorabilia, random things from Sean Murphy, who's one of the big Hollywood um, recording engineers. We have a bunch of boxes of that just sitting in our drum cage cabinet. God. <laughs> and uh, we've gotten inquiries from Intrada Records about looking, they're looking for some James Horner stuff. Would you like to go through those boxes and go through all those scores and just catalog them and let us know what's actually there? Because we haven't actually looked at it. It's just there for many it's just years. Sitting it's just there. collecting dust. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I, so I, yeah, I took like a, a bunch of boxes home that with like Sean Murphy scores that he for like John Williams stuff and James Warner stuff and Danny Elfman stuff and a bunch of other random things. You know, I had it at my house just, and I just, you know, put it all into an Excel spreadsheet. Um, ironically, they, they didn't have the thing that Entrada was looking for, um, but it was a cool little opportunity to see, just to, like, just to have a bunch of scores. And these are from guys for whom the orchestrators were all doing handwritten scores. So, so all these scores were handwritten. Accused. Is that just because they, for the most part, yeah, they it just it was better for time to use handwritten, or I think at it was just, time, or was I it before th- finale? I th- and I think most of these things were from like the eighties and nineties. Okay, so still not. When so it was like a transitionary period where where people who were doing the jobs were still way faster at pencil mm-hmm, paper. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so that was the gig. It, I, it lasted like three weeks, but so when I you got did, paid. <laughs> when you did that, I mean, were you, I mean, obviously it's a big opportunity to learn too when you see, because uh, yeah. were there any scores in particular or passages in particular where you thought, wow, like this is like a real, real technical mastery or this is like, I can't believe they put something like this in a film. It's like so specific <laughs> or. Uh, I mean, you, most of the stuff any... I saw was stuff that I had heard already. Either I'd seen the movie or had heard the soundtrack. But it was cool seeing, like, like they had Williams' score for Crystal Skull in there. Uh, the Indiana Jones. Yeah. And so seeing that on paper was like, oh, that's how he does it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a few John Williams sketches in there. And, of course, the sketches, for the film music nerds out there probably know this already, but Williams', is, Williams is sketches, they're either eight staves or 16 staves. 
Um, and they're definitely shorthand, but they are more or less every detail is on them. So the sketches you saw were by his hand, like original manuscripts? I, I don't, I, I feel like they were photocopies. Okay. Because again, these were from recording sessions, so things would have been copied right. to get them to everybody. Um, so I can't remember exactly if there were any too many original manuscripts as opposed to copies. They're mostly copies, I would guess. Um, but no, it's like, so I had a bunch of cues from, from Crystal Skull. I had a bunch of cues from Lost World, the second Jurassic Park movie. Um, and yeah, so I had those in my, in my house for about three weeks while I wow. sorted through everything. <laughs> and I, of course, gave them all back. But, yeah. uh, but that, was, that was just a fun, uh, fun little thing to do. And it was, a nice, it was a nice way to spend a month. Yeah, I mean, I did something also. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get paid for it, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I got uh, paid. So you got paid. Great. That's a better deal than me, yeah, but, but I learned a lot. I, I saw, I was going through the James Ewan Howard down... Uh, yeah, I've, you know, I've done that. I mean, yeah. Oh, you've been I there. I went there he, for a day, yeah. Yeah, so he, he donated his entire yeah. uh, catalog to USC. The maybe cool a thing... a couple decades ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that collection is there. I went and looked at that for a day, an afternoon. Um, but, uh, it's an interesting time because, especially for people who are into that, those guys, those, those types of composers, because a lot of their music is getting, uh, one, it's getting re-released in like complete score, you know, editions, uh, on record, um, through like, like a handful of labels that are in LA. Because um, it used to be, usually when you bought a soundtrack album, you wouldn't get all the music from the movie. You'd get as much as the studio could afford to pay the union to license, mm-hmm. which could be, it could be, up, in the case of John Williams, it was usually a full CD, but often cases it would be more like 40 minutes, LP length. Um, so a lot of that music is being released in its complete form nowadays, um, which is great for anyone who's interested in it, and also great for you know, anyone looking to study it. And there are two companies that have only sprung up in like the last five years, four or five years, that are publishing in book form, um, digitally notated, the full scores of, of major movies. Um, one company is called Omni Music Press. Uh, the, the other is a company that's named after the guy who owns it. It's Chris Sadal. And those are, um, you know, are making for very interesting study materials as well. I don't do nearly as much score studying these days as I used to, just because I'm how busy I am. But, um, but yeah, I think those things are going to become, you know, very popular music libraries for undergrads to look at. And these uh, scores are meant for study, or they're also meant to be performed. I think originally they they were hoping that they could be used as performance scores, but I don't think they're I don't think they're really they would be difficult to conduct from, and I've yet to hear of anybody conducting from those specific editions. Uh, for, the, for the big film to, con- you know, live-to-picture concerts that go on nowadays, for like Star Wars and Harry Potter and, 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 and Titanic or whatever, you know, you're getting a huge tabloid, two, two editions of tabloid, Act yeah. 1, Act 2. Um, those, I mean, as you 
probably know, as you know from doing orchestra music, like, you know, you, you got to make the score easy for the conductor to read. And the editions I'm talking about, this, they really are more study editions. They're like 9 by 12 books with like as many bars on the page as possible. Oh, I see. They're just kind of done as quickly as possible just to get as much music out I there. Think, I, I, they're, I think they're definitely trying to save as much paper as possible. Okay. Um, and, and it is a lot of music. It's like two hours of music per edition. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would not want to conduct from one of those from those editions they're just too small right right. you could theoretically but uh, but if you go to any like live to picture concert for star wars or superman um or the harry potter ones that are that are being done now it, you know the conductor is conducting from a full at least tabloid sized thing yeah, and those are like packages. Packages. I mean, you can, yeah. you, you know, you can't just like I don't think you right. Can just those like you get can't. It. Those you can't buy commercially. Yeah, you the can't. ones I'm talking about, you can buy commercially from the websites. Right, right. They're right. actually published. Right, that makes sense. So they do. They are study scores, but they're not small. They're they're like nine by twelve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and those, uh, you know, are, you know. Really interesting to having grown up listening to film music and having no access to any of that. It's really cool to at least be able to see, um, uh, to have access to look at that sort of thing now. Although, you know, the scores themselves are not entirely perfect. Um, you sometimes hear discrepancies between what you hear on the recording versus what's in the score. And so I would not call them what these two companies are doing there. I would not call them critical editions, so to speak. Right. They're definitely not urtext, so to speak. When they first started publishing them, there was, there was kind of a hope that people would start organizing performances, but they have really, I think realized that they're really only useful as study materials. Yeah. But there's plenty of people who are interested in film music who will find those study materials very useful. I just wonder what will happen like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now when, yeah. because all the scores being made now, they're not just, you know, straight up acoustic scores. Yeah. I mean, the integral part of the scores are what they're doing in the box, mm-hmm. in the computer. So I wonder what will be the equivalent of that for study, you know? Will it be helpful to have a, can you I imagine like having stems well, or I know something? That <laughs> just... the... Yeah, I mean, that's what, like, I know that film scoring programs at universities, that for them is like, really what they try to get is those assets. You know, like, not just somebody's files from, you know, composer's files or, or sequencer sessions, but also, you know, clips from the films with all the music removed so that the students can practice. No, but even the, even the clips of the movie, like, yeah. you know, like seeing the new, whatever, Fantastic Beast movie. Yeah. And just seeing, like, the original... Um, uh-huh. You know, just seeing all the stems, yeah, or even, or even, even going back further and seeing right. all the MIDI inputs, like what, and, or the mm-hmm. actual orchestral template, yeah, like what Junkie XL does. You know, on his sure. YouTube channel, he has he he goes through the whole. Oh, this is my MIDI uh, for people that are really interested. It's fascinating because yeah. you can see his template. You could see all the him putting in in live. Uh-huh. I mean, he's redoing it because he obviously already composed right. the cue, but he's showing yeah. you here's my tempo map. Here's mm-hmm. what I was thinking when this cue hit. Like he would tell you, explain yeah. to you. And I wonder if this is going to be like the, you know, Urtext 
a kind of version of yeah, it's, film it's, music. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because that stuff obviously is not... I think that the difference is that the notated music is, has made the jump between in the box to this is going to go in front of human beings to play. Um, whereas if you're just a sequencer file and all your, and all your plugins and whatever, that's, even if you want it to be recorded eventually, you're not at that stage. Like you don't, you, ha you, you, you don't yet need to put it into a standardized form of notation and then publish it either, you know, or copy it for other people to look at. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an interesting question is like, how would people study the composers of today, their, their, um, their sequencer files? I mean, even for me, because I actually do, um, when I'm scoring films, uh, I definitely, depending on the context, will occasionally leave the pen and paper just completely out of the process and, and do a lot of improvising into the computer. Um, and yeah, I, I, it, it's hard to imagine, you know, put, giving that to, let's say a student or a younger person and them actually looking at it and, and gleaning, you know, some, very specific or knowing what specifically to look for um but uh yeah but i'm sure someone will figure it out i mean the youtube thing I, there are people there's at least one person on youtube whose whose name i forget who has been going doing this thing where they reconstruct cues from like famous cues from movies that are mostly electronic and and trying to get them as close as possible. Oh yeah, there's, I've seen a lot of channels like that where they, yeah. where they like mock up the Q base or something. Yeah. It sounds pretty good too, actually. It's like 80%, like right. yeah. 90% there. I mean. Yeah, it's, so I think, I think people have that covered one way or another. But for me, who's... who's um, and, and that's the interesting thing about how I kind of went about figuring out the sequencer side of things is mostly... I mean, I think I like took one class in music production uh, during school. The rest I ended up kind of teaching myself, but whatever, I mean, whatever I was doing, the guiding light was always like just knowing what I wanted it to sound like, mm -hmm. uh, which may sound obvious, but but it you know, if you go into if you don't have a lot of music tech experience, and I certainly don't think of myself as as a as a you know a master of logic uh, or or um, or that sort of thing, but but people always compliment me on my on my mixes, and all I can tell them is I just I just know what I want it to sound like, and I just work at it till I get it there. There's usually a lot of Google searches involved, <laughs> trying to figure things out. Um, and there are probably a lot of things I'm doing that probably aren't the most efficient way of doing those things. Uh, but, but I think that the fact that I, you know, have listened to a lot of music, I've gone to a lot of concerts and, and really know what I want my stuff to sound like really helps guide 
like you know my ability to solve problems in the sequencer and yeah and you're not doing it on mass either it's not like you got to churn something out every day right you're not one of these uh i mean that's just the nature of that, that uh -huh. business you got to work 16 hours a day and you gotta mm -hmm. and usually it's like one thing you're really good at yeah and that is what you're being paid for mm -hmm. whether you're synthestrating or whether you're yeah. you're just engraving or whether you're right. whether you're you know your job is to pro just do programming mm -hmm. or your dog your your dog <laughs> your job yeah is to just do technical setup just everything mm -hmm. in the studio your job is to make sure it's technically running yeah you're the way you think and the way I think too is like I'd like to be good at, you know, reasonably good at everything. Yeah. And if there's something that I really can't do, okay, I'll hire that out for that yeah, one time yeah. out of every, every once in a blue moon. Sure. Um, but I also like you, I, I don't feel that I'm like the techni most technically capable at logic right. or, or, or even at Sibelius, I should even point out, like, I, I, don't, I don't find myself to be the fastest person in that program. I, I, don't, I don't know all the hot keys. I definitely feel more at home in Finale than I do in Logic, but it is, yeah, I mean, unless you're doing it more or less 90 to 100% of, of your time, yeah. you're not going to be, have that mastery over it. Um, and it's just, and if, you know, if you don't need to have that mastery in order to get your work done, then I don't worry about it. But what you, what you said before, I think, is, is an extremely important takeaway, which is you know what you want it to sound like. Yeah, and, and that has been very useful in, uh, in how I edit recordings of my orchestral music. Because uh, you get a performance, you get some sort of recording, which is usually a little bit too dry. Mm -hmm. There may be some mistakes in it here or there, or somebody didn't come in. And if you're lucky, you have you know, a dress rehearsal or some other thing to use. And so I think when it comes, so I've actually, the electronic side of what I do has actually been enormously valuable when it comes to handling recordings of acoustic music and getting them not just sounding decent, but, also, but just sounding as kind of like attention grabbing or 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 you know or or even bringing just, out the qualities that i had in mind when i was writing the piece even more than what we were able to get on yeah the stage. and not just like following a step of things that people typically do but yeah you know following your ear is really <laughs> what it is yeah mm -hmm. and i mean the same thing is when you're composing as well mm -hmm. like i feel I always know what image I want, but I, I never have, at least for me, I don't know how it is yeah. for you, but with me, it's like, whenever I start a piece, there's always that tension in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But once I have an idea, like a concept, I'm like, all right, that's it. Yeah. That's it. I'm like, I'm sure. excited. I know the image in my head mm -hmm. and I'm just excited to start working, you know, with that, like the, the, the spark. Yeah. And it's like this, uh, this thing where, I, I don't know how I'm going to get there, right? Necessarily. Right. I don't know exactly which pitches and with what rhythms, mm -hmm. but I know the feeling and not and even past the feeling. Mm -hmm. I know how I want my ears to, to, to feel over a span of time. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing. Sound, I yeah, think I mean, there are, the there are surprises once in a while, especially if I start doing extended technique stuff. Um, I might get a sound that I, or a, a gesture that I didn't anticipate which sometimes can improve the piece, sometimes I have to change it, but 
but yeah, I think that 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 is part of your training is just developing those instincts for what you actually want your piece to sound like, and that will flow into not just your rehearsal technique but also your um, things you're doing before the performance and also things you do after the performance with the recording. Um, because as you know, the recordings are just, they're the first impression. They're the most important thing, um, I think. And they're the yeah. most immediately accessible thing. Yeah. I mean, if I want to listen to your piece, I, that's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to look up a Patrick O'Malley concert. That's not going to be the first right. thing I, I do. Yeah. Because that's, that's, the, that's the moment of friction right there. Yes, yeah. you know, fine. but that is the best way to listen to a piece. I still think is at a live show uh, versus the recording. You definitely get something in a live show that you don't get at a recording. But once you're once the show is over, right? Then I treat the recording very much as its own thing. And what was okay on stage is not necessarily okay on the recording, and I might have to fix it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the most recent thing was, was this Viola Concerto. And, you know, I, we were told, well, you'll, you'll get a recording in, like, two weeks. And, and my soloist, Brett, had, you know, had met the engineer and had listened to a bit of the mix, the live mix that they had from the rehearsal. And, you know, come up to me and said... It's actually sounding really good. And I had said, okay, but like, wait for me to get my hands on it before <laughs> we start, you know. Yeah. You know, because I'm going to do, you know, a lot to it. <laughs> right. Guaranteed. So, um, and, the, and it always pays off. I think, that, I think that so many of those opportunities that you and I wound up at, the orchestral stuff, I think a big part of that was was the fact that I went in, I didn't just take the recording and send it off. I took the recording and really sat down with it in, in, in the electronic space and, you know, listened to everything multiple times and really said, is this really the best that it can sound without obviously changing the music? And so um, I, th I think that that really is something, you know, something that I'm telling all my students to do is like, don't just, don't just take a recording and, you know, and then just put it on your website. Like, really, really ask yourself, is that really what I wanted to hear? Yeah, because it's, mm -hmm. uh, you got to, like, I, I, always, I always say composing yeah. is a very narcissistic endeavor because yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're expecting <clears throat> someone to sit there for, especially a concerto, you know, half an hour concerto, you're expecting yeah. them to sit there and listen to it with attention. Uh -huh. It's not like watching a film where you're, your many senses are being stimulated at once. It's a full that there's a more there's a more you know there's a narrative there's a more less abstract narrative mm -hmm. thing happening. Yeah, and that 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 layer in I feel like whenever you're consuming a piece of content, you mm -hmm. you want the audience to be invested. Yeah, right. And it's just harder that barrier. I think for the kind mm -hmm. of music we write, it's just harder. Yeah. But once you get someone invested, you got them. Mm -hmm. I think even in a stronger pool mm -hmm. than other kinds of media. If you sure. have the right type of person that is listening yeah. to the music, I, I mean, I really believe that. Um, so, I mean, I heard your concerto, of course, and like what I was saying before about the, about the idea of storytelling, like all your pieces have this kind of vein, but this piece really, I thought, 
uh, did so because of the yeah. concerto aspect. Sure. Yeah, the violist there. Uh -huh. You can't help but having that person be the protagonist of the story. Of course, yeah. I mean, you can't help but make that association. Yeah. And once you make that association, it doesn't leave. Uh, it doesn't right. leave your brain. It's not like, yeah. okay, the, you have many stretches where the violist doesn't play or is being drowned out on purpose. But you always are remembering, hey, the viola, where is the viola mm -hmm. the entire time? Yeah. Which you don't get in like a normal orchestral piece where it's more like this, this, this general image. Yeah, that you you're get, getting, like a, a landscape or yeah, something. Sure. That you're watching like a, uh -huh. many hills changing over time kind of vibe I get when I listen to Bruckner or something. Yeah, or, yeah, of course. You know. um, yeah, especially with that piece, the viola concerto, because... I mean, I, I listen to a, a good deal of, you know, contemporary, shall we say, viola concertos, going all the way back to, like, Walton and Hindemith. Um, and a lot of them <clears throat> tended to use either chamber orchestras or, or some sort of reduced orchestra, um, I guess because they think, you know, it's the alto voice of the of the strings, and it's just one string, so it's really not that loud, and so you don't want to overpower it. And I, for whatever reason, I just I just knew I wanted to use a full orchestra for this concerto, and which meant that I had to really be very careful with with making sure the violist was heard. And many times, the solution is just to have the orchestra not play, or at least or play very in a way that is not going to obstruct the violist even slightly. Um, there's a few places where I do it on purpose, but, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minority of the instances. And um, so I feel like my, the concerto, when I listen to it, I, I'm actually like, this is, the amount of times where the, where the viola and, and the orchestra are actually playing together in some sort of harmonic and or contrapuntal way is actually quite minimal for a lot of concertos, but um, on the other hand, but it's also adding, I think it's also highlighting the, the, the soloist as that protagonist even more in a case, which to me is like, kind of like, it's a nice fun aspect to that piece that's different than, you know, other pieces I wrote. Oh yeah, it's very different and it's yeah. different than a lot of concertos because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess it doesn't, doesn't help much for people watching <laughs> yeah. if you haven't heard the piece, but Right. Just as a general thing, I mean, your piece has like six or seven, I would say, true cadenzas where yeah. the soloist is playing literally by himself. Right. It's pretty rare. Usually it's like one or two cadenzas maximum uh -huh. in, a, in this kind of length yeah. concerto. And that every time it came up, I was always surprised. Wow, another cadenza. But it, it always was like a nice thing. I didn't feel like, uh -huh. oh, I'm not hearing the orchestra. Like, right, right, right. Right. I want to hear the orchestra. No, every time uh, the violist yeah. became a soloist, I was like, oh, wow, this is, I really, how often do you hear the violist really playing by himself? Mm -hmm. It's kind of rare, you know? Yeah. You don't you see, hear viola solos within a context of an orchestral piece. It's usually a violin soloist right. or even a cello soloist sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Oboe, English horn solo, right. you know, classic. Uh-huh. Um, but you gave the violist, I, I mean, if I was writing a viola concerto, I wouldn't have thought myself to, to do that many soul, like true souls, where literally no percussion, no nothing is going on yeah. in the background. Yeah, I mean, that's something else that I have, I think, been experimenting with in other pieces as well, is, is the idea of, just because you have all those people on stage, do they really all need to 
play all the time. Um, and of course, it's different for each piece. In some pieces, like especially if you're writing for younger players, you should have everyone involved pretty consistently. Um, but when you're writing for pro players, I think you can, there are very interesting dramatic things you can do by juxtaposing everyone playing versus very few or nobody playing, or, you know, or certain dedicated textures that last for long stretches of time when you're leaving people out. And so, and because of the, the orchestrational logistics of, of the viola concerto, it just kind of lended itself to that avenue without me really thinking too philosophically about it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, I, it, it seems to be, now that in hindsight, it seems to be like a nice, you know, kind of aspect or feature of yeah. the piece. You took a weakness of the viola and made it a feature of the piece in yeah. a formal way. I don't uh, know if you were thinking of that while you're writing it, but it comes off that yeah. way from the first listening. Uh -huh. I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. And um, very different from the piece I'm recording this week, which is the Violin Concerto, which that piece is, uh, my, our, our school performance of it is available for people to listen to. Um, and that piece, there's much more um, intertwining between the ensemble and the soloist, partly because it's a violin, so it can soar high above orchestrationally, and also... It's a symphonietta orchestration, so you can do. It's much easier to weave in and out of different chamber combinations and all that. Yeah, smaller yeah. than an orchestra, and yeah, you don't have all the bells and whistles of the percussions, big percussion section, a big brass section to yeah. worry about. Right. And, uh, and the other thing I, I I notice is when you introduce big brass sounds, mm -hmm. it's it becomes the elephant in the room. It's like, in in the sense yeah. that oh, I heard a big brass sound. Is it going to come back again? You know, yeah. it's just so, um, you know, when you hear a sound like, especially when you're using the triads and things like that, yeah, or yeah. it's producing acoustically, it's giving you, right. it's giving you what you want, right? Yeah. You get that dopamine hit when you, uh -huh. when you hear C major, sure. you know, horn triad, horn triad or something. Mm -hmm. And you always are thinking, well, when is it going to come back? And it's the same thing in Beethoven or, mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like this. Um, but when you have a smaller symphonetta ensemble, you don't have that. So you got yeah, to, it's got to be, okay, where, where am I, for lack of a better term, where are my dopamine hits coming? Yeah. yeah. What, what textures do that? How do I weave mm -hmm. in and out? Yeah. What, you know, and, and this is something I'm always thinking about when I'm, because I write a lot more chamber music now. It's like, mm -hmm. where do I get those? Right. Where do I save those moments for? Yeah. That's interesting because I think the last time you were in LA or the last time we hung out in LA, I'd seen... We'd heard um, Takt had gotten the orchestral version, yeah, and played. Um, and that piece, to me, you can, which is interesting because it was originally a symphonietta piece, right? A fifteen. Yeah, that was people. the first version. Yeah. Yeah. So you've so that's an instance where, and I haven't tried that. I haven't taken a symphonietta piece and done an orchestra version or vice versa. I've done. Orchestra and bass solo. <laughs> that, well, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> Although I thought, I think, was I the one that uh, put that thought You in inspired your head? that because, because of the, <laughs> the, the, the come on fantasy. Yeah, taking a two-player piece and make it for 80 right. people. Well, yeah. One of those two players was a piano, so that makes it... Yeah, it makes it easier. A yeah. little bit easier to imagine, perhaps. Yeah. But I, I just thought of it as like, a oh, that's a genius way for me to not spend an entire year writing one piece. Yeah. <laughs> 
so I, that's what people were doing back in the day though they would make these little piano sketches right, there and, right. you know or even well listed it the other way around of course sure. taking a big beethoven piece and make it into right, the piano, piano two-hand piece two-hand i mean why not yeah. you know it's not not against the law or anything no but it was just <laughs> it was I, I guess I just hadn't really thought to imagine one of my chamber pieces being blown up like that. But but the thing interesting about about Toct is hearing those two different versions. I don't think I, I believe I did hear Kaleidoscope play live the mm-hmm. chamber music version, the the symphonietta version. Um, and I, I I'm just curious, which do you have a preference out of those two versions, or what what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of the ironic thing yeah. is the orchestra version has been played more times yeah. than the chamber version. Well, I don't yeah. know why. Just I probably because the chamber. What, how many is it? Fifteen people. Fifteen players. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a weird group. Yeah, there's not that many ensembles. Right. I mean, there were just a lot more orchestras yeah, out there exactly. than a fifteen-player ensemble. Uh, I kind of like the Sinfonietta version more, to be honest, because yeah. I, I I I can just hear the harp more. Uh, the harp is such a big feature yeah. in that piece. The harp kind of gets lost in the orchestra version. And I have to double it with a lot of other weird effects in the orchestra to get the general effect that I want from the orchestra, mm-hmm. from the harp. And I like the sound of the harpist singing in the beginning mm-hmm. and just have her sing. I don't, I don't necessarily like it too much when, because in the orchestra version, I have the harp singing uh, in the beginning, but then uh, many other voices okay. also sing. Which kind of makes the sound a little bit more like a choir, which mm-hmm. is not really what right. I wanted to sound yeah. like. I wanted to sound like a singular voice. Uh-huh. So there are like definitely actually blowing it up to a bigger size actually mm-hmm. had to introduce a lot more uh, compromises. Mm-hmm. It was the other way around. There was, even though I had more players, I had to introduce more compromises mm-hmm. into the sound world. Yeah. If that makes sense. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with that particular piece, but yeah, I, I if I I would rather hear the the Sinfonietta piece, the Sinfonietta version again. Mm-hmm. And there are some things in the strings where the the harmonics and the the just the ornamentation just is a lot more clear when you have one person, one person per part doing all, it. All people. Uh, whereas in the orchestra, I knew that that wasn't going to happen, so I just went the other way. I said, let's just make it real messy. Yeah. Okay. And have everyone playing a slightly different thing uh, instead mm-hmm. of trying to get them all to play like these really exact. Um, right. Grace notes in the exact right place. Mm-hmm. I just saw so the concept of the piece changed mm-hmm. uh, from the original idea, but it's—I mean—it's still the same piece. Yeah, I mean, of course, it has, it's the same length and the same. Yeah, I mean, I think I felt the same way. Like I feel like yeah. I can hear more. There's more. I can hear the details of the chamber version better. The orchestra, of course, has a bigger sound and a bigger, yeah. a bigger, shall we say, you know impact if you will yeah but since you wrote the chamber version first i think those things kind of those features feel more at home in that version to me of course yeah and mm-hmm. I, you know it's just it's just the like you, you were saying mm-hmm. a, a lot of it is not creative either i mean in terms of the reasoning it's like well mm-hmm. i, I want to write more orchestra music but i don't have time to write more orchestra music yeah. so what do i do instead like what what are my right. options here like I'm not interested in having three hours of sleep a night, so that's out of the out of the. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to have a more normal life, so sure, you know. So what what are my options? So it's almost like I I ran out of options, and that's what 
Mm-hmm. And that's what the option was. Like, how do I take that piece and make it into a bigger piece? And I mm-hmm. do that with basically every piece. If, if there is an opportunity for me to yeah. make a small piece to a big piece or vice versa, I will do it without even thinking. Sure. I will just do it, you yeah. know, especially if I'm enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. And it's even easier when someone is interested in it. Yeah, of course. Uh, in, in a new version, mm-hmm. then I will do it. Like, it's just, I don't think about, like, mm-hmm. the creative part of it or the... Right. Uh, or the ethic, ethical part of it, although I don't think that's, some people think about that, but I don't think that's even. I don't know, I don't I don't know if that'd that's, be applicable to what we're doing. No, no, but some people will, when you first tell someone that's what you do, I feel like that's the first thing that hits their mind. But when you actually are, when you see what the process is like, it's like, yeah. it's, it's just, it is work. It's not like flipping a switch and, and, and turning on chat GPT I mean, and being like, it, it hey, really make only this becomes, into a. <laughs> it really only becomes a problem if the final product, you know, comes off as lazy in any way, mm. or comes off as arbitrary. Um, and I have heard that in a few instances with some people. But, it's, but, but most of the time, we're dealing with something that is no different than Bach reusing music that he wrote for a cantata as a concerto, or Mahler reusing his songs as symphony movements or something like that it's completely legit yeah i think it's also healthy yeah you got to think and that's something that might lead us into an interesting conversation about personal style and personal identity as a composer like what is that's something that i found myself really obsessing over in the latter half of my usc days is like you know Every, you know, all these composers have a personal style, and we grow up being told, you know, the obvious, like, you know, oh, do your own thing, have your own style, that's what sets you apart, blah, 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 blah. But nobody tells you actually how to actually do that, right? Yeah. Um, so I actually kind of tried to figure it out, at least from a, from, in the context of the type of music I was interested in. Um, so I started, and of course I had been, you know, you know, part of this was brought on by, I think, um, noticing that starting to hear more modern film music that, where I didn't feel like I could hear a through line of the composer style, as opposed to, you know, all the guys we've mentioned so far, whose style you can recognize, um, I, you know, had studied with Andrew Norman for two years, and of course he was, you know, kind of became notorious for rewriting, you know, his pieces. Um, and, and so that kind of, like, got into my brain about, like, okay, how does that, how does that work without anyone, with, with the pieces still feeling like new pieces, but even though he's using similar ideas piece that's, to piece. That's funny. I, I never thought about it that way. Well, no. it depends on what piece you're looking at, but because there are the extreme differences between a piece like Play versus uh, that first piano concerto um, of his, which is very like quiet in the entire way. Re- release? No, it's not what it's called. Oh my God. I think you feel like it starts with an S. Suspend. 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 Yeah, Sorry. I think so, yeah. God, how did I forget? Yeah, suspend. But um, in the second one, the split is completely different, though. Right. I've never heard that one. You haven't? No. It got. 
played in New York and I just Oh my god, there's it. so many people that are big Andrew Norman fans that I know that don't know that piece. And he I'm, tells I'm me I'm well aware that it exists. Oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I mean I know that you know that it exists, obviously. I suppose I could bug him for the a recording. But he but... doesn't like that piece. Yeah. He wants to I told I don't know if I told him though, but that's that's my favorite piece of his mm. split. Yeah. And he wants to redo it or he doesn't want it to get played. I'm like, right. dude, that thing is I mean, I, with the people I was with when I heard that piece with the New York Philharmonic, yeah. I mean, they, people had chills after hearing that piece. Like, it was like, and he felt like, I remember one composer I remember the saying, rehearsals were a little rough from what he told me, that there, there were some things that had to be just axed out, which of course would make anyone feel bad. But Maybe he felt bad during the moment, but uh, I'm kind of derailing this conversation a little bit, sure. but I, I no, feel we'll like it's back to... important, but... Um, you can't, what was that? you can't dismiss how someone feels about what you did. Right, right, right. You know? So even if you had a piece and I showed up mm-hmm. and, I, and you just hate what went on, and, but I come up to you and I'm yeah. like, hey, or even I'm telling other people, maybe I don't even come up to you. I yeah. just say it privately. Hey, I love no, this. No, I've, yeah, I've had that happen. You can't dismiss how a people few, feel. Like, a few parts and it kind of like, it's like almost surreal for a moment. Yeah, it's like we heard. Did we hear two different things? Yeah, yeah. But then it usually, you, if as long as you know, let's say you're getting compliments on it, I find that that you you come around to that somewhat quickly. You know, you're you're neurosis about whatever you expected to happen that didn't happen or whatever. I think it's just also hard for us to. I want to get back to this personal style thing because it's yeah, important. Yeah. But I also I just think like psychology psychologically, it's important for us. Uh, to realize that there are compliments that are sincere yeah. and there's also compliments that are, you know, it's just oh, kind of sure. like, and that's, I also think that's part of it too. Like, uh-huh. is this a sincere thing they're telling me or is this just yeah. something that they're telling me because it's the end of the show? Sure. And I don't blame, I, I guess I don't blame people for having that back I and feel, forth dialogue. Yeah. It's, I mean, obviously, you know, those conversations happen, um, you know whether you want them to or not, but I, if somebody mentions something specific in my piece, that tends to you know, I feel like that tends to be genuine, or at least that's what I try to do. Yeah, when I hear something of somebody else's, is really like figure out, even if it's a piece I didn't super enjoy, like but like what what was like a moment that I'm going to carry with me yeah. out of the concert hall. So, so you know, studying with Andrew. Looking back on film music I, I really liked versus, you know, stuff that I wasn't liking and this, that which of course might flow into a music criticism conversation. Really just trying to focus on like, you know, how do you actually create this through line from piece to piece for enough time where, it, where people recognize it as your music? Um, and so that was something that I started to listen for more intently when I would listen to other people's music and also start to kind of look at my own music with a much more, shall we say, technical eye in terms of like, okay, what was my, you know, if I take a piece, a pre-existing piece that I finished, what were my favorite part? What, what about it sticks out to me? And... And then you do a little bit of theoretical analysis, not like hardcore, you know, charts and stuff, but like just playing around with the motives, the intervals, 
the rhythms and starting to slowly over the course of time kind of compile a sort of list of favorite ideas and not be afraid to go to that list when writing the new piece or something like that. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I don't know every instance, obviously. I, I, I tend not to remember the actual act of composing most of the time. It's just kind of a blur when I think mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have made it to the point where I'm starting to get comments you know, more and more often that like, oh, that sounded like a Patrick O'Malley piece, which is like, that was my goal. So I feel like I'm making progress in that, in that arena. And uh, so yeah, a combination of looking at my own music in that way, a combination of looking at other people's music in that way. Um, my, um, at USC, we don't have to write a dissertation paper, but we do have to write papers for other DMA things. Mm -hmm. um, I had to write a paper for my theory uh, uh, academic field, and I wrote it on uh, Goldenthal, specifically his polystylism, in the sense of here's a guy who tends to incorporate a lot of different styles into his into his music, but it still sounds like it's by one person. How does he do that? Well, Goldenthal so, is yeah. a strange case too, yeah, because he's got like a symphony in G sharp minor, and then he writes the score to Frida. It's like right. it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> yes, but you, but like, and that was the thing that really, really piqued my interest. Was like, but like, it sounds like the same guy mm -hmm. most of the time. How? But like, you know, you can say all this philosophical, sentimental stuff about, you know, his life experiences or whatever. But I actually like got in and was like, okay, what motives is he using? What orchestration is he using over and over again? Or like that's the sort of nitty gritty musical thing. And so that was the basis of my paper was like, you know, like here's somebody who is using a lot of different styles, which you would think would be difficult, would make it hard for a through line to be heard from the from a single composer. But here's all this musical activity that's happening. Is there a way to, to see that online? Is it public? Uh, it, you can probably find it uh, through USC's, um, oh wait, no, since it's not a dissertation, it may not be, I think only my, my violin concerto is, score is on the USC dissertation thing, but I'm happy to share it with you, of course. Yeah, I'd love to put that in the, in the description below, if that, uh, yeah. if that, if you're fine with it, because I think it's really interesting. For it's any, an interesting for anyone that got this far in yeah, the, in the right. show probably would want to click on that because that's i want to read it at least yeah so. sure so and and then, and then just but when i listen to people's music and i love doing if i have time when i have time i love doing marathons listening marathons where i'll listen to like everybody like a single artist like i'll just get all their albums um and and start to just listen in that way obviously if you have time to score study that's even better but usually i don't so it's so it so it is kind of trying to pick out um, very specific musical things that a person is doing piece to piece. Yeah, instead of having it just like come to you. Yeah. Like, or or you're, you're like curating your own style in a way. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And you're, you're being very conscious about it. Yeah, and, it, and, and that to me is something I care a lot about because it, I, feel, I came to realize that it was something I was missing 
and a lot of music I was contemporary music I was listening to. Mm-hmm. The sense of like, here's here's a main idea in my work that I care about, and it's at the foreground. And somehow, one you know, okay, so you have to worry about just a singular piece in that respect, but then also carrying that towards your other pieces to the extent that you're able to. I mean, obviously anybody can undergo a big stylistic shift. Yeah. Um, in fact, I consider you one of those people who, who has done that already. Um, yeah, def- yes, definitely, yeah. But that was more of a product of necessity yeah. than a product of well, doing it, it on purpose, I right. feel like, or like studying past things. Felt mm-hmm. like I, was, I, I hit a wall. Right, and that's doing. when you should switch. Yeah. My problem is that I, I feel like people don't spend enough time with their ideas. Mm. Um, and, you know, and so I, it's difficult for um, me to hear or me to get a sense of what, what they musically care about sometimes. Right. Um, and that, of course, leads us into the criticism aspect, which we can or can, you know, no, yeah. that's great. No, because I, I, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we got on camera, but yeah. the idea of, uh, which I never think about, and probably a lot of this comes from mm. my studies with John Corleano, who sure. said he never reads, I don't know if this is true or not, yeah. he told me after the 90s, he never reads any, any uh, sure. criticism of his mm-hmm. music, uh, his concerts. He just doesn't, he doesn't want to know. Right. He doesn't want to know if it's positive. He doesn't want to know if it's negative. And I kind mm-hmm. of, I kind yeah. of just, took that stance as uh-huh. default, you know, yeah. um, since then. I mm-hmm. was, what, 22, 21, mm-hmm. so I'm obviously still very impressionable at that age. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so I don't, I guess I never really paid attention to, like, what people thought of my music. Sure. I cared more about, like, am I, do, how do I feel? Like, am I bored? Yeah. Like, really, that's, like, the number one question. I'm, am I bored? I think it's relevant for me, even if you don't read, you know, your reviews, just being able in your own compositional and listening life to be able to actually explain cogently why you like something versus why you don't like something. Um, and that to me, you know, goes into, cause I've met people who write music that they don't enjoy listening to. That, that was like some of those doctorate students at Northwestern like actually said that they said this out loud that they, like that like i i enjoy thinking about my music more than listening to it or something like that or i really? remember one or one one older student saying you know he came in and showed a piece and he basically introduced the piece being like so this piece come I, i've written this piece this is this is kind of a new thing for me because i realized the music I was writing before this, I just didn't enjoy, you know. So that was, you know. So that's sad. Yeah, for adventures on sad. Yes. So, and although I have never been in that situation personally, right. I do think it's useful for me, you know, especially when you're going out and hearing stuff, to be able to break things down into why things work versus don't work. It's certainly helpful if you are teaching privately because you can't just, if a student comes to you with something that's not working, you can't just tell them, you know, it's terrible. See you next week. You, you have to be able to explain why something's not working. 
right in a, uh-huh. in a verbal way and right. not just as a you know oh yeah uh-huh and move on yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so when i when i talk about criticism i'm really not talking about really about reading reviews of stuff it's really more you know my personal taste and why why i think things work versus don't work and, and kind of actually going through the process of of you know sorting those things out and then applying them to my own music mm-hmm. um and for example i remember i don't think it was at a single concert but i like maybe over like a span of a year i'd gone to a number of contemporary music orchestra concerts and at the you know at some point i just realized that i had a very difficult time remembering anything about the music for the most part i mean this is a, <laughs> this is a common thing well i think part of yeah. that too is that they, they always put so many they put the contemporary pieces on the same program they put five six in a row part of it's and the how, program how can you for help? sure how but can, i how also how does that help yeah but i also think you know the pieces themselves i mean yes if you put a contemporary piece on a concert of nothing but Lordson and Whitaker, you would it would you would stick in your memory a little bit easier. Yeah. But but even so, I definitely felt like there were there were issues happening in the pieces themselves, and so in that per- particular instance, I remember starting to think much more about what are my main ideas versus my supporting ideas. Hmm. What 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 is the foreground? in what I'm writing versus background. And what and in the sense of what do I actually want the audience to hear and maybe have a chance of taking with them. Not, maybe not humming the tunes or anything, but like moments. Um, and so and that changed the way I dealt with things like you know, certain orchestrational choices and dynamic choices. That was, you know, something that um, I often you know, harp on with students because it's one it's the easiest thing to fix. Mm-hmm. You just change the letter. <laughs> um, but it can make a huge difference, especially in a piece that where you have many layers going on. So, so that was so that's an example of like me not liking something and then unpacking it and and trying to figure out why do you actually. Because it's very easy to say, well, it's just not my thing, or it's just not the style I want. But, well, it's, but in, yeah. it's interesting because you, you make it a technical process from mm-hmm. the composition side. Yeah. When you listen to the piece, it doesn't sound uh, technical in a way that a right. lot of contemporary pieces sound technical in the way that they actually put the pitches down. Yeah. But in the formation of how they got those ideas, mm-hmm. it actually might be the opposite. It might not be technical at all. It might <laughs> be just like, oh, I just want to sound like Bernie or I just want to sound right. like... My professor, which is not a very technical reason right. to write music at all, actually, right, exactly. just a, just like a following a certain trend or following some. Oh, maybe everyone else will right. like me if I write this certain way, which is not a technical way to approach it at all. Yeah, and um, so that's what I. So that sort of thing. That's what I mean when I talk about music criticism is not, not actual journalists. I don't really care that much about reviews, yeah. um, although I I will read reviews usually um just to see if there's anything useful i can throw on the website um but 
I'm talking about my own abilities as a critic, as a personal critic, not a professional one. But also, uh, and how that can influence, uh, how that can influence my my music. Um, because everybody likes to bitch about music, but I, you know, it's like to me, I want it. I want there to be a, a productive angle to it. Yeah, productive bitching. Yeah, <laughs> right. And 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 critic and this criticizing criticism word is interesting because it's in between pieces also, which mm -hmm. I feel like composers don't really do. At least I don't. Yeah. I'm just like, all right, I'm not composing for a month. That's it. Great. I don't think about composing. <laughs> But it sounds like to you, it's like, all right, what did I, what did I take away from this piece that I can put in the next yeah. piece? You're active about it. I'm not so much like this. I, I kind of like, like to compartmentalize it. Yeah. Uh, when I'm composing, that's, that's my time to compose. I don't really, I honestly don't really think about, um, the most that I, that I think about when I'm composing is, uh, reading like papers or mm -hmm. reading like I, more than ever now, I read a lot of scholarly articles cool. about things just yeah. to, for the next piece and it's more just reading and yeah and, and th than anything else not literally composing just to like have well, that more, makes sense more for, for the type of music you write where you're you're usually interacting with some sort of pre-existing practice yeah um whereas me i'm kind of just you know well you are doing whatever interacting with the pre-existing practice too <laughs> i am but there's 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 there really there isn't the sort of this is not the same cultural thing happening yeah, but it's still yeah. it's still a matter of you're dealing with uh, motive, you're dealing yep. with intervals, yep. you're dealing with uh, functional harmony, right? Or when do I use it? When do I don't? Like you have a moment in your piece where it's boom, boom, you got a five one like oh, cadence yeah. oh, yeah. out of nowhere, but 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 you you mm -hmm. you played the audience to that point. You knew when to put it there. Yeah, there was that recognition of what that is yeah. from the audience, of course. Right, you're you're playing with perception, yeah. memory. So you are dealing with things that you could read about in a scholarly of course, way of if course. you wanted to, yeah. But that's you know, everyone deals with it in a different way. Yeah, you know, I just Absolutely. with me, I hit a wall. I, I needed to go deeper into the text to figure out what. Yeah, what course. are those intervals that I want? Yeah, to I use? feel what like are the I, I feel like for me, I'm always trying to play catch up with my you know my music collection, and if I'm in between pieces, that's usually when I try and actually. Go online and go to all the, you know, think about what ensembles are in town. I should go see what their schedules are, you know, because usually I don't do that. Oh, oh, who is that? Guest. There is a guest um, in our show today. This is my wife, Ambra. Hi. What's going on? <laughs> uh, I'm done with the call, but I need to do something. And I think Ivy needs to go out. All right. Well, maybe this is a good time to stop. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for being on. Um, right. I got Patrick's details down in the description below. Yeah, you can check out his music. The Viola Concerto is not online yet. No. It, but that's, uh, so that obviously uh, uh, major orchestra here in the U.S. You can't use those recordings. Right. Except for private purposes. But we are hoping to certainly do a commercial recording of that awesome, awesome within you know hopefully the next couple of years cool cool all right check out the music down below and we'll see you in the next one